Hey, it's Daryl. As we get started, I wanted to let you know about a new course that I just released last month, and it is called Helping Others Grow. And if you are interested, uh, I want to give you a special coupon for podcast listeners, and the code is PODCAST21, PODCAST21, and that will get you $10 off the course Helping Others Grow. If you're interested, go to gospelforlife.com, and you can find out more information there. Okay, that's it. Let's get started. Welcome to the Gospel for Life podcast. We help churches make disciples. And now, here's your host, Daryl Dash. Hey, my name is Daryl, and I'm pleased to welcome Brett McCracken to the podcast today. Brett McCracken is a senior editor for the Gospel Coalition and the author of a number of books, including Uncomfortable, Hipster Christianity, Gray Matters, and his most recent book, The Wisdom Pyramid. He lives with his family in Southern California, which makes me a little bit jealous, and he also serves as an elder at Southland's Church. I came across a tweet the other day. Matt Smethurst wrote this, Dear person who will post a best books of the year list in December, here I'll help you out. And then he pasted a picture of the cover of the Wisdom Pyramid. And I'm confident that that's going to be true. I think it's going to appear on my list of top books of this year. So, Brett, welcome. I'm grateful for all your writing, and I would like to welcome you to the podcast today. Well, thank you so much, Daryl. It's a pleasure to be with you and just humbled and honored by your words about the book and that Matt, that Matt Smethers tweet. I, it was one of those embarrassing <laughs> tweets to see because... I don't know what to say except, okay, thank you. That's very kind. Yeah. But um, yeah, I appreciate it. No, it really is a valuable book and I think a timely one. So I wanted to ask you, how did you end up writing this book? Well, you know, it started as a conference presentation uh, talk that I was giving a couple of years ago on um, kind of the fake news environment that we're living in, this epistemological crisis and how we as Christians can thrive in a, in a world like this. How do we find truth and joy and, you know, flourish in a post-truth world? So as I was giving that presentation, I came up with this idea for like a visual aid to have a slide kind of on, on the screen as I was talking. And it was the, the concept was, what if I took the food pyramid, which is this visual aid in our childhood to teach us how to have a healthy food diet? And what if I took that concept and applied it to wisdom in, in terms of what are the categories of knowledge, the categories of information that are conducive to a healthy diet for your soul, you know, to, to, to be wise ultimately. So that's where the concept originated. And the, the graphic that I had a, a friend of mine design, it kind of went viral a little bit, ironically, on social media when I, when I put it on social media. And it, people just really resonated with it and, and kind of sensed the, the way that we, we've kind of flipped the pyramid. So I have, I have social media and the internet in the top portion of the wisdom pyramid, which is the least important, the, the most potentially hazardous for our health. And the Bible on the flip side is on the foundation. And I think when people see the wisdom pyramid graphic, they just intuitively realize man, we've, we've actually flipped it. And, and most of us in our functional kind of day-to-day diets, 
we have made digital content the foundation, the staple of our diet. And it's honestly making us sick. Most of us feel that in some way in our lives. We feel this sickness by virtue of the unhealthy diet that we're having. So so I wrote the book. It, it ended up resonating the pyramid. And I, a couple of years after that, I was thinking about what I wanted to write for my next book. And I pitched this idea of the wisdom pyramid as a book. And Crossway was excited about the idea. And so I basically just expanded on each category that's in the wisdom pyramid and, and kind of why those different categories are helpful sources of truth conducive to a life of wisdom. You know, the, it's an interesting book because the illustration gives you so much of the idea of the book, and yet reading yeah. it was still so profitable. You know, it turned in from a, a helpful illustration into a really rich book yeah. to read and apply, so I appreciate that. Well, that's good, yeah. I, I, I was mindful of that, like, writing the book because I knew, like, I don't want the book to be a disappointment after people have already seen the, the graphic. I don't want it to be redundant, so I really tried to make each chapter as insightful as I possibly could in terms of what you can actually glean from the Bible, the church, nature, and so on and so forth in terms of your, your diet of wisdom. Yeah. Well, Brett, we're absolutely blessed. Uh, I was reading about Susie Spurgeon and her ministry of providing books to pastors who really had no resources available to them. And I chuckle yeah. now because we have so much information available to us. Uh, yesterday I was yeah. wanting a book and I was able to instantly download it, uh, go to a couple of sites and find the best price and have it in my proverbial hands, I guess, on the computer in a matter of seconds. And yet, mm -hmm. you know, although we're so blessed in this hyper-connected world, we also face a new set of challenges to our souls. So could you explain yeah. some of the dangers that we face with what you call yeah. information gluttony? Yeah, it is kind of like a paradox because it's, like you said, it's a blessing on one hand and it's a curse on the other. And so that, that chapter on information gluttony, I talk about kind of the problems of, of instant access to so much information. And really, for me, what's challenging about that is it's way more information than we know what to do with. And it's so overwhelming to, to even know where to start with all, you know, any given Google search that you type into your search engine, it turns up dozens, sometimes hundreds of responses on the search results. It could be a simple thing like, you know, what's the best Mexican restaurant in my city? And there's 50 results. In Southern California, there's probably hundreds of results. And it's not, sometimes it's not helpful because it's like, I, I, I wanted this to make my life easier. And now there's too many choices to wade through. So that's just kind of a superficial um, example of how it's, it's, it's more harmful or more unhelpful sometimes. But there's actual like interesting neuroscience that's come out recently that looks, has looked at how the brain is functioning. How are our brains kind of faring in the digital age? And one thing that researchers have found is that the overwhelming glut of digital content coming at us every day, all day, every day on the internet, it's forcing our brains into this constant mode of triage where every, every minute our brains are having to kind of sift through, like, is this important information? Is this trivial information? Should I file this away? Should I discard it? Discard it? And the energy that is expended 
in that constant triage where our eyes are darting forth from one thing to the next constantly, it doesn't leave any energy for our brains to do the deeper, you know, reflective synthesizing type of thinking that we really need them to do um, for wisdom, right? In order to be wise, you have to, you have to have some space, some energy for that critical thinking, that reflective thinking. And that's increasingly uh, not a, a capacity that our brains have. Um, and so it's not only the glut of information that makes that challenging, but also the speed. And that's another dynamic that I talk about in the book is this fast paced speed of the internet age. And we're moving so quickly from one piece of content, one piece of information to the next that we rarely have space to process things and to, to turn information into nutrition, so to speak. So just like, just like fast food is generally unhealthy for us because it's just kind of, you know, we eat it too fast. Uh, the same is true of like this junk food information that we, we oftentimes make our staple in our diet where we're just kind of eat, eating the, the digital version of Skittles and Doritos and donuts all day throughout the day. And none of it is is really nutritious for us. It's just kind of in one ear, out the other. So those are two of the, the big problems that I see, the too much information and then the too fast information. It's interesting. I was reading uh, a guy yesterday and he was saying he, he reads 10 books a year and he was scratching his mm -hmm. head, nothing wrong with the people who read 100 books a year. But he said, right. I couldn't do it. I, I just need to read 10 books a year and then... Yeah. I spend as much time thinking about the books as I do reading the books and chewing it oh, over. I love that. Yeah, I was challenged by yeah. that because I tend to be the guy who's reading totally. so many books and I was challenged to think about slowing down and really digesting uh, what I read. Well, I, I, that convicts me too because I'm like you. Like I'm, My stack of books is always like daunting in how large it is of, of books that have come out recently that I want to read, old books classics that I still haven't read and I just feel this pressure to just churn through books as fast as I can but what I just have come to see in my own life is that it's sometimes not helpful right like you don't want to rush through <laughs> especially like a classic a classic um, work of Christian thinking or theology whatever I just read Tensies by Blaise Pascal which is a, a great old book and I, I tried my best to just go as slow as I possibly could, just a few pages at a time. And it was hard to do that because I'm so used to this consumer mentality of just wanting to check things off of my content consuming list. Um, but that, that often works against our wisdom rather than enhancing it, I think. Brett, today I talked to probably one of the wisest men I know. Uh, he's just somebody that if you spend time with him, he drips wisdom. He just is so immersed in the Word of God. And mm. he began mm -hmm. to talk about all the different books that he's been reading that were really weighty books. And uh, after spending an hour with him, I just felt like I, I would have been blessed and I wanted to be like this man. And it was yeah. interesting, though, in the middle of it, he said a couple of things that stuck with me. He said that one of the keys to his reading is that he traded in his smartphone for a dumb phone and found that it, it gave him probably an extra hour, at least a day. And yet the other thing he said, because yeah. I was starting to put him on a pedestal, as he said, 
sometimes he goes to the BBC News website uh, at lunchtime and finds himself beginning to scroll. And before mm-hmm. he knows it, he looks up and an hour's gone by. And he said, right. you know, nothing wrong with having a break. We don't always have to be productive. Yep. But I think yep. we want to guard against aimless clicking and scrolling. So, you know, even this man yep. that's so wise was saying that he still finds yep. it hard. So give us some wisdom. I know totally. you're not saying we need to get rid of the internet or get rid of our smartphones. Right. How can we avoid just being sucked into mindless scrolling and clicking? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hit that point a few times in the book, This the danger of the meandering, aimless digital wandering. That's where I think we get into a lot of trouble, where we we open our phones, not because we have anything in particular that we're wanting to find or do. It's just this weird instinct that we have. It's like a Pavlovian response to to free time, right? I wrote about this uh, last week at the Gospel Coalition, how we're, we're kind of now conditioned when we have a 30-second break, whether we're sitting at a stoplight in our car or waiting in line for a coffee, our instinct is now to fill that short break in time, however brief it is, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, we pull out our phone and we just start scrolling out of habit. There's nothing in particular we're wanting to do. It's just aimless wandering. And like you said, once we, once we get accustomed to that, we can find ourselves just spending hours of our days just wandering online and not to say that there's never anything fruitful that we stumble upon but more often than not in my experience i i just end up feeling like man i just wasted an hour like what was i doing i i became aware of a a new twitter controversy that people are debating you know maybe i saw a mildly amusing youtube video that was going viral that day but it didn't really add much value to my life and and one of the big downsides of that aimless wandering kind of fill every spare moment of your day with meandering on your phone is that it 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 removes every last shred of open space where we could do that thinking that I I referenced earlier that deep reflective kind of synthesizing form of thinking where we actually start making connections and we we reflect on that article that we read earlier in the day or that book we're reading, you know, how it connects to our experience in ministry or in life. And we just need that. We need that open space in our lives. And in the digital age, it's just becoming such a, um, just a a rare commodity that we have to be so intentional about fighting for and protecting open space for thinking, reflecting, and of course, praying that discipline of just being silent enough to actually seek the Lord in prayer, the spiritual disciplines, all of that is, is sort of what I'm talking about in this book. We we just we become foolish, I think, insofar as we don't have the discipline to avoid constant distraction, which which is a, a greater temptation, I think, for humans today than maybe any generation of humans prior have faced. The temptation to be constantly distracted by some form of stimulation, some form of amusement is just immense. And so I think this is going to be a big discipleship challenge for the 21st century. And we're only getting started uh, unless somehow 
society changes course in a major way. So I wrote this book as just kind of a little bit of a contribution to what I think is going to be an emerging field of study in Christian ministry and Christian discipleship, which is digital habits and how we're, how we're being shaped and formed and how we're losing the ability to cultivate, you know, spiritual disciplines and wisdom and things like that in, in, in an age like this. That's so helpful. I, I remember going to see, uh, I guess you'd call him a spiritual director one time, and I, I began to tell him about something I was listening to, and he was asking me about that. And he discovered first, if I ever go for a walk, I've got my headphones in. You know, I'm never just mm-hmm. walking somewhere, meditating or enjoying. I'm always doing two things right. at once. And then I made yep. the mistake of telling yep. him that I think I was listening at one and a half speed. And the look on his face, <laughs> <laughs> he, he just couldn't mm-hmm. believe that not only was I squandering this opportunity to be present, but I was doing so with a 1.5 speed podcast in my ears. So right, right. (laughs) it seems to be the way we live these days. It's so true. And I'm guilty of that too. I'm not a, I'm not a huge podcast listener because with everything else I have to be up on (laughs) in my job in terms of the arts and culture and music and movies and uh, books it's one, it's kind of the one thing i've said okay i'm not i'm not going to be up on all all the podcasts out there but when i do listen to podcasts i tend to do the one and a half speed thing and you're right it just it feels like what's the point of experiencing content if we're trying to optimize it and maximize our time so much that it really is just like fast food information that's like we're gorging ourselves like we're stopping our face as fast as we can with content. And I just don't, I just doubt that that's ultimately helpful for, for our, our mental and spiritual health. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Brett, I wanted to ask you about the actual wisdom pyramid itself. And I really appreciated the, the content in there. Some things I think initially just be intuitive to a lot of us. It doesn't mean we're doing it, but mm-hmm. having the Bible, uh, you you yeah. order things basically from the most enduring, beginning with the Word of God, the eternal Word, mm-hmm. and then up to the most fleeting. I think some of the things actually surprised me in there, the fact that you included nature and beauty. Uh, I wouldn't yeah. have initially have thought of that, and yet it's, it's yeah. so appropriate and so rich. So could you unpack a little bit about you know, mm-hmm. the pyramid itself and, and particularly mm-hmm. the role of maybe the some, some of the areas, you know, we're familiar with the Bible yeah. and the church and the internet yeah. at the top, but maybe not things like uh, nature yeah. and beauty. So how, what role yeah. do they play in our uh, wisdom diet? Sure. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think those are the two categories of, of the pyramid that I get the most questions about, nature and beauty. And, and I love talking about it because it's, it's so just personally, those areas have been really enriching in my, in my life and my spiritual journey. So yeah, just a quick word about the structure going from the bottom up. You mentioned it tends to go from the most enduring to the, the most fleeting. And another rubric or guide that I had in my mind as I was constructing the order was I wanted it to go from the most proximate to God to the least proximate to God. So my thinking is if wisdom really comes from God, if, if he is kind of wisdom incarnate, then it makes sense that if we're going to be wise, if we're going to glean wisdom from anything, it's going to be easier to do that 
the closer we are to God, the, the closer in proximity we are to him. He's the source of wisdom. He's the standard of truth. So, of course, his word, the Bible, then has to be the first layer because it's his. It's the most proximity we have to his wisdom, literally spoken to us in words. What a gift that is that we have this book of, of God talking to us. And then the church is the second most important because with the whole proximity to God idea, the church is God's people. It's his presence among his people. He's forming this community across space, across time, in, in this spirit kind of building up the church sort of way. So so that has to be an important part of our wisdom. And then that and then nature comes third in my in my argument because with the whole proximity to God idea, nature, we believe, is God's creation. It's his handiwork. So the word of God is his words, the church is his presence among his people. Creation is his it's his work. It's his art. It's his masterpiece. So you can you can know something about an artist by looking closely at their canvas, right? I can I can sort of make some assumptions about who Claude Monet is by looking at what he paints, the the water lilies and so on and so forth. And I think that that's true of creation too. And and the Bible even kind of directs us to do this, right? Psalm 19, Romans 1. There's a few places in scripture where we're, we're told that, you know, the heavens declare things about God, like the skies above proclaim his, his handiwork. And there's things you can know about God just by virtue of just paying attention to his creation. Uh, Romans 1 says you're really without excuse uh, when it comes to certain basic things about how God ordered creation. So for me, nature is huge, and and one of the reasons why I think even it's particularly important in the digital age that we live in, because I think we are generally more disconnected from creation than any previous generation of of humankind, and and that's largely why I think we're so foolish. Because when you're disconnected from creation, you become disconnected from your own createdness we are creatures as well we are we are part of god's creation and so it's not surprising to me that in a digital age where we live our lives mostly in this kind of abstract mediated screen experience that we start to think of these weird ideas that i can be something that's totally different than my physical (laughs) biology would suggest that i am to me that that's just an, a great example of how when you're disconnected from creation, when you're living more of a virtual existence, suddenly your own personhood becomes something that is disconnected from physical reality. And we're seeing that, of course, in the transgender movement and various things like that. I talk about that in, in the chapter on nature, but I mean, there's other things with nature that it's just it's just God's gift to us, right? It, it reveals his, his beautiful, abundant, just grace, right? It's, he didn't have to create tens of thousands of species of hummingbirds, or he didn't have to create however many hundreds of thousands of species of orchids there are in the world, but he did. And that's just amazing. Like what kind of God does that? So creation is it's an, it's an excuse, it's an invitation to worship God and to be grateful for what he has created that he didn't have to create. 
So that's nature. And then beauty, I'll be brief because I've been going, going long on this answer, but there's a lot of overlap, I think, with nature. But beauty, I think, speaks to the fact that wisdom is not just a cerebral reality. Like, we don't become wise only by consuming facts and, like, uh, data, right? Wisdom involves our whole body, our senses, what we can taste and see and feel and, and hear. And so music and the arts and beautiful things, they work on us on the kind of less cerebral level. They work on our hearts. They shape our loves. You know, beauty can really, it, it can really lead us to worship and it can grab our hearts. And um, I think that for Christian, in Christian life, it's so important that we're not just <laughs> knowing God in the cerebral sense. But we're loving God with our with our hearts and minds and our whole bodies. And that's why throughout Christian history, music has been a part of worship because it does something to us that goes beyond just reciting words in creeds or you know reciting truths in, in a preposition propositional sense. It, it engages our hearts and it helps us love God and and, and really pursue him in his presence. So that's why it's so important for our wisdom. If if wisdom ultimately is about our, our lives being oriented towards God, you know, inviting us closer into his presence, and beauty can really help with that. And so uh yeah, I'm for myself it's been it's been a huge part of my spiritual journey is just making that connection that the arts and beauty are not something that we should see in opposition to faith, but actually it's a beautiful partnership with faith because everything beautiful in life i think is a testimony to the capital b beauty of god he is the source of beauty he is the reason why beauty can exist and so if we if we allow ourselves to start to see the arts and beauty through that lens then it can be a great way to just develop even more love for God and, and, and gratitude for his abundance and for his goodness. Those moments of beauty can be breathtaking and almost, not almost, I think worshipful, you know, you see, yeah. you hear yeah. a beautiful piece of music or see a beautiful piece of mm-hmm. art and it leads you into this yeah. sense of awe and wonder that isn't that far right. off from worship. Uh, that's so good. Totally. I think one of the verses that's, just briefly, that's the key for me on this is Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good, right? It, it, it doesn't say, um, you know, think that the Lord is good in your brain. It uses that sensory language, like taste and see. And and for me, that was the, 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 wedding, the wedding theme verse for Kira. My wife and I, when we got married, was Psalm 34, 8, because we love beauty. We love good food and travel and the arts and music and for both of us it's just been such a um, incredible part of our faith is to just to taste and see that the lord is good that's so helpful well brett you live on as part of your job at least i know you live on the internet it's not like you're you're living in some cabin uh off the the grid or anything like that can you describe how some of these uh, ways of seeing the world or uh, trying to build your own wisdom uh, inputs, mm-hmm. how has that shaped what you do in, in your work as you engage on the internet? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a good question. And honestly, I think I probably wrote this book out of my experience of working for a living on the internet and being immersed in in this space that can be so so toxic and so soul crushing at times. Just you spend too much time on social media and you can't help but feel your soul just burdened by it. So I if I was feeling that in my own life, I knew that others were feeling it too. And so I wrote this book for myself just to kind of remind me of the better, more nourishing places that I can be looking and, and spending my time and, and also hoping that it would be a helpful rubric for other people. So yeah, for myself, some of the things that I try to do, like, is, you know, I, I just try to like limit my, my time in certain, in certain times of the week on the weekends. I really try to, um, when I'm not kind of on the clock for my job, I, I try to just put my phone away, not look at it. Uh, be present with my wife and my kids as much as I can. And, and so there's those small things, just kind of moderating your the total hours of the week that you're looking at screens. But I think it's also for me, what's been helpful is just starting to think about how I can, when I am online, how I can use it for edifying ways and in ways that actually bring health and nutrition to people. So I think generally the Gospel Coalition tries to be that. We try not to just be a, another website that's adding to the anger and the vitriol and the debates and making people frustrated. We try to be pointing people in a direction of truth and goodness and beauty. And for me, in my job at the Gospel Coalition, I, I focus a lot on the arts and culture and so that's kind of the beauty part. Like I spend a lot of my time in my job looking for good things in the arts, beautiful things that I can share, that I can point people to, like whether it's playlists on Spotify or a new movie that is something that is good and true and beautiful and, and celebrates virtue. So that's one thing. I, I I just try to in my in the way that I use the internet, I try to point people to the good rather than only complaining all the time about the bad, which can be so tempting to do on social media in particular, because that's kind of the MO that most of us see on social media is this constant like rant about this, complaining about that. And not that there's never a time for that. Certainly it's good to call out evil and injustice. But the accumulated kind of experience when that's all you ever see and that's all you ever experience can be really crushing. And so I think if, if Christians use the Internet and social media in more edifying ways to just point people to good things and to true things and to, to use, use your platform to elevate other people and to um, build up other people rather than only promoting yourself or your own opinion that would be that would be something that would be a step forward i think that's really good well brett i wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about how this affects our discipleship task in the local church yeah. we're we have a lot of people who are being discipled by the internet and by social media what are some strategies that we can adopt within our churches to help people grow when these forces are so noisy and powerful 
Yeah, I mean, this is, like I said earlier, I think this is going to be a really big area of thinking and writing and discussing in pastoral ministry because 2020 was a year when I think it became quite clear and in a disturbing way just how much your your average Christian, even even if your average faithful church-going Christian, is actually being discipled more by their online habits and the various voices they're listening to, the echo chambers that they're kind of immersed in. You know, Christians are being shaped more by that than they are by their local church and by their Christian community. And part of that is just a simple (laughs) ratio of hours. Like you might spend two hours a week with your Christian community and you spend 50, 60 plus hours on the internet. And so it's no surprise that that's the more influential force of how we're formed. So it's a problem. It's a challenge. I I don't know that I have any like smoking gun solution. In part, I wrote this book to be one resource to, to help pastors disciple people because I do think one of the big questions really does come down to your habits. Like, where are you looking? Who are you listening to? What, what is informing your perspective on the world? So I think that it's a good place to start in discipleship, just to kind of ask those questions to then to kind of have media literacy discussions in terms of, yeah, just things like echo chambers and, you realize how the algorithms of social media are incentivized to keep you basically perpetuating the reality that you want to believe and and feeding you more of the same and how that negatively shapes you. So yeah, I think just general media literacy, awareness of of how sadly uh, media companies are are profiting from constant partisan bias and inflaming our anger. And it's all about just keeping us hooked, right? Keeping us on their platform, keeping us tuned in to their, their TV station, whatever. So I I think every pastor, if you haven't already, should probably do some sort of class or session on, just the dynamics of the media world and how how we are being formed, how this is a matter of the spiritual formation. It's a matter of discipleship. We we are deeply formed by what is coming into our, our minds and our hearts. And uh, the internet is just a really potent landscape of formation. And so the first step is awareness of that. And, and then helping people to be more just self-aware in their choices and being intentional about avoiding kind of those echo chambers and maybe intentional about seeking out different voices, voices that challenge you a bit, uh, learning how to disagree well, <laughs> learning how to learn from things that you disagree with. That's like, that's a really lost art, being able to read something that you disagree with in large part like you know i I might read an article on any given day where i'm like 80 percent of this i agree with and is valuable but 20 percent of it i don't 
that doesn't mean I'm going to like blast this person on Twitter and say that this is heresy because 20% of it, I don't agree with <laughs> it. It's just to say that that's most of life, right? It's complex. There's, there's good and truth always intertwined with error and bias and falsehood. And we as Christians need to be better thinkers to be able to engage content and engage a world like this with eyes to see what's good and true and helpful and also what's not helpful in any given piece of content, whether it's a book or an article or a podcast. We don't have to buy into 100% of everything in order to find some value in it. So, yeah, I'll stop there. But I mean, there's a lot that could be said about what we could do better in how we engage digital media and content. It's such a new phenomenon, you know, less than two decades that we've had these smartphones in our pockets. So we're we're just beginning to figure out even the impact Mm -hmm. that's having on us. So your book, The Wisdom Pyramid, is such a valuable book in helping us think through these issues and discerning a better way to live. I really appreciate it. Brett, I wanted to ask you a couple of more personal questions as we close. What are you learning right now? Hmm. Oh, that's a good question. Um, Yeah, you know, I I think this is kind of a, a big lesson from 2020 and the pandemic, but the way that it had forced has forced all of us to be more limited in our both on our location, just kind of physical at home more. I know I, I work from home. I do everything at home with my now my wife works from home with me and my kids. And as frustrating as that can be sometimes, and as much as I get restless and I'm someone who loves travel and I love exploring the world and and I'm I'm chomping at the bit to take my next flight someday, you know, yeah. where I'm, I'm going to go to the Gospel Coalition Conference in a, in a few months. So I'm excited about that. But, but the lesson for me has been that actually, like, this is a healthier way to live in general, like to be to be limited in your proximity. So your, your life is oriented mostly around what you can, what you can do things about. So starting with your own family, you know, your own household, and then going out from there, your own neighborhood, your own community, your own local church. I think that one of the big temptations of the internet age is that it can constantly pull us far from our local context we can be on the internet all day and our minds and our hearts can be attending to the drama happening out there more than we're attending to the drama happening right here in our own household in our own family our own church so for me i think the pandemic it was just like a good reminder that actually it's a good thing to be kind of focusing your energies on what's right in front of you. For most of human history, that was the default, right? We didn't have communication technologies for the vast majority of human civilization until the last century or so. We didn't have the possibility of being aware and um, invested and angry and things happening far away from our immediate context. 
Now, it's not to say that there's never times that it's helpful to be aware of that stuff. There certainly are, but I think that in general, we are wired, we are created to flourish in local places, in our immediate context. And, and I've just seen how beautiful that is in my own life recently. And I'm, I'm learning, you know, how can I just see the beauty and the simplicity of here are my people. This is my first frontier of impact and discipleship. My, my local church, my family, and, and that's part of why I put the local church as the second level of the wisdom pyramid is because it's a good reminder that this is where God has planted you in this local church. This should be your, your focus when it comes to building up other people, being shaped and grown by other people, and, and being formed spiritually. And it's so easy to look at your spiritual formation in terms of like, uh, the Tim Keller podcast that I can listen to or the TGC article that I can access. And, you know, I'm kind of, <laughs> it's ironic that I'm saying this because I work for the Gospel Coalition. I do think it's a great resource, but even at TGC, we're constantly pushing people to the local. We we want to support local churches, but we never want to replace it. And I think that that is a is a helpful perspective when you think about digital content and the internet, it can be a great kind of supplement and it can help you think through things. But ultimately the most immediate community and the most immediate reality that you live in is going to be the most helpful and uh, the, the place where you can have the most impact. So that's a long answer to your question of what I'm thinking about and learning these days. This might be a similar answer, but what is encouraging you right now? Hmm. Wow, that's a good question. We don't ask each other that enough, I think. I think I, you know, as someone who really has always loved music and art and culture, something that I think has been great about the internet and things like Spotify is it's just become easier to discover and share really beautiful music. And uh, that's part of what I love about my job in kind of a curator type role. It's my job to like find under appreciated lesser known artists who are, who are making great music or creating great art and then sharing it with other people. And so the nature of social media as this kind of place of, connection where we can share things with one another and network. And um, yeah, I, I just think in, in the area of the art, it has actually been a really cool thing to see how I've, even personally, I've made connections with musicians and artists and gotten to know them. And I've been able to help them by sharing their music with the Gospel Coalition audience. And they've been able to help me just by blessing me. And so, yeah, it's just a great kind of spirit of blessing one another with our gifts and talents. And, and the, that's one of the great benefits of the digital age, I think, making that easier. I've really appreciated reading your book, The Wisdom Pyramid. I've actually appreciated everything that I've read of yours. So thank you so much, Brett, for your ministry of writing and also for your work at the Gospel Coalition. Where can people find you online? Yeah, thanks. Um, I well, the Gospel Coalition is kind of primarily where I write these days, but my personal blog, uh, brettmccracken.com, I also occasionally post 
blog posts there, and you can learn about all four of my books there. And uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter and you know all the social media, but I don't want to push that too hard because I would be going against my own advice of <laughs> calling people to lesser time on social media. So um, yeah. Well, thank you for your read ministry. My book. Yeah, read yeah. your book. <laughs> That's a good way to do it. Yeah. It really is yeah. a book that deserves to be widely read and and applied as well. Mm-hmm. So, well, Brett, thank you for being mm-hmm. generous thank with you. your time, and I look forward to reading, continuing to read your books, and uh, very encouraged by what you're doing. Thank you so much, Daryl. It's been a pleasure.